This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 5, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. We are on the final episode of Biladu Sudan, or the Land of the Blacks, the series about the various Muslim African empires, mostly in West Africa. Today, we will be discussing the Songhai Empire and two of its most famous rulers, Sunni Ali and Askia Muhammad. So, Stay tuned after the episode for more insight into the story. There were certain things that I couldn't fit into the narrative, and I'm going to try to talk about them after the, after the main episode is over. Show notes will be available, as usual, at, at uh, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash askia, that's A-S-K-I-A, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash askia, and uh, also support the show by going to patreon.com slash islamichistory. And so with that, here we go with Season 4, Episode 5, Sunni Ali and Askia Muhammad. Timbuktu Timbuktu is one of the most famous ancient cities in Africa and definitely the most well-known of the Muslim West African empires. During its heyday, it was the most important city in the Mali Empire for both commercial and Islamic reasons. Timbuktu was founded around 1100 CE by Tuareg nomads who used to rest and water their animals at a nearby well. A slave woman named Buktu had set up a camp near this well to accommodate nomads and other travelers. The word teen means well in the Tuareg language, and the camp became known as Teen Buktu, the well of Buktu. But over time, it came to be called Timbuktu. Timbuktu is right on the edge of the Sahara Desert and is one of the most northernmost Sahelian cities. Its proximity to the Niger River made it an ideal commercial center for North African caravans crossing the Sahara. Timbuktu was often the first city these caravans would see coming out of the desert and the last they'd see before entering it. Timbuktu has had several cultural peaks and valleys, but one of its highest points was after it became part of the Mali Empire. Mansa Musa conquered the city in 1325 on his way back from Hajj without spilling any blood. He simply parked his army outside Timbuktu and encouraged its residents to recognize his authority. Once Timbuktu became a part of Mali, Mansa Musa invested in the city's infrastructure and commercial sector. Before long, it was an important link in the gold and salt routes between North and West Africa. Mansa Musa also implemented a plan to turn Timbuktu into a center of Islamic learning and scholarship. His plan worked. With the investments in the commercial sector and Islamic scholarship, Timbuktu became one of the wealthiest cities in Africa, and it also became a global destination for Islamic studies. Timbuktu boasted over 150 schools of Quranic studies. Young children would attend these schools to commit the Quran to memory before advancing to higher levels. 
Timbuktu also had an Islamic University network spread out among three locations, Jinjadabur, Sidi Yahya, and Senkori. Senkori University was the epicenter of Islamic studies. Senkori University was based out of the Senkori Mosque. The mosque was built about 380 years after the death of Prophet Muhammad and funded by wealthy local Muslim women. Classes at Senkori followed the Islamic tradition of scholars lecturing to a gathering of students. They lectured on Nahwa, Arabic grammar, Tafsir, Quranic exegesis, Hadith, recordings of statements and actions of Prophet Muhammad, Fiqh, Islamic jurisprudence, and famous books written by Islamic scholars over the centuries. When a student proved himself competent in a particular subject, his teacher would give him an ijazah or certificate. This gave the student permission to teach that subject to others. A student might spend years learning under one scholar to earn his ijazah. This often led to close relationships between teachers and students. Very often, a student would marry his teacher's daughter, thereby creating a family of scholars. Over time, these scholarly families grew entrenched within Timbuktu's university system. Their influence eventually spread out of the schools and into the city's administration. It was long before these scholarly families controlled Timbuktu. The Fall of Mali and the Rise of Songhai Within 75 years of Timbuktu's capture, the Mali Empire was beginning to crumble. After Mansa Musa, most of the Malian rulers were not very effective. The Jola Federation in Upper Senegal was the first to break off in 1350, barely 20 years after Mansa Musa's death. Fifty years later, the Mossi people of Burkina Faso captured Timbuktu and held it for nearly three decades. Meanwhile, Mali was constantly attacked by marauding nomadic tribes. But Mali's biggest threat came from one of its own vassals, the Songhai Kingdom. Arab historians visiting Songhai wrote the kingdom was ruled by the Dia people who were descended from Chwaweg Berbers. They say the Dia invaded Songhai centuries earlier in an effort to spread Islam. However, there is evidence suggesting the Dia were not Berber at all, but rather originated from the sub-Saharan Soninke. Most likely, the Dia were a mixture of both Berber and Soninke due to centuries of warfare, marriage, and commerce. The Dia made Gao their capital and primary commercial center. Mansa Musa captured Gao in 1325, the same year he captured Timbuktu. He left the Dia to manage the kingdom in his name, but took two Songhai princes as hostages back with him to Mali. While in Mali, the two princes were trained and educated in Arabic, sciences, and warfare. Over time, one of these princes, Ali Kolon, earned the trust of the Malian authorities and began leading military expeditions on their behalf. Ali Kolon began stockpiling weapons and choosing missions that brought him closer and closer to his home of Gao. When Mansa Musa died in 1332, several of Mali's vassals rebelled against the empire. Ali Kolon took advantage of the chaos and escaped back to Gao with his brother and the stolen weapons. Once he was back in Gao, Ali Kolon led a revolt against the ruling Dia whom he saw as Malian puppets. The Dia were overthrown and Ali Kolon conquered the capital of Gao. The Songhai elders gave him the title of Sunni, which is the Arabic word for tradition. This indicated he represented the traditional rulers of Songhai. 
Ali Kulon was able to resist Mali for some time and Songhai remained independent during his lifetime. But after he died, Mali recaptured Songhai but was too weak to hold on to power for long. Sunni Ali was born about a hundred years after Ali Kulon's revolt against Mali. His father was Muslim and a descendant of Ali Kulon. However, it is believed Sunni Ali's mother was animist and had the greatest influence on him. Sunni Ali was only 24 years old when he inherited the throne from his father in 1464. When he did, his first order of business was to strengthen his military and expand his kingdom. He built a fleet of boats that allowed him to ferry men and weapons up and down the Niger River. He trained a devoted force of professional soldiers and filled out the ranks with thousands of armed slaves. His powerful cavalry, however, was strictly drawn from Songhai nobility. His army was housed separately from the rest of society in military camps. They went into battle wearing padded armor and carrying swords, spears, and arrows. With unprecedented military discipline, Sunni Ali consolidated his power in Songhai. He defeated the remnants of the Dia, fought off external invasions, and began dismantling the Mali Empire city by city. In 1468, Sunni Ali got an opportunity to add Timbuktu to his conquests. By this time, Mali was too weak to protect the city which had been attacked and conquered several times over. Though still revered as a center of Islamic scholarship, Timbuktu was nearly in ruins. The city was now ruled by the Tuareg Berbers who forced the scholarly families to pay tribute for protection. But the Tuaregs were cheating. Tuareg raiders would attack Timbuktu, ransacking the city, killing and raping at will, then carrying off loads of wealth. Then the Tuaregs would turn around and demand tribute for quote-unquote protecting the city. In Sunni Ali, Timbuktu's scholarly family saw an opportunity to escape this oppression. They invited Sunni Ali to conquer the city and fight off the Tuaregs. They would come to regret that decision. Sunni Ali Sunni Atakita, Mansa Musa, and Sunni Ali represent three different Muslim leader archetypes. Sundiata was a just but impious leader. By all accounts, he was Muslim in name only. He did not fast, nor did he faithfully observe the five daily prayers. He did not promote Islam in Mali and did not rule by Sharia, Islamic law. To top it off, he also dabbled in witchcraft. But Sundiata ruled fairly and worked hard to improve the lives of those under his authority. Mansa Musa was the ideal Muslim leader in that he was both just and pious. He checked off everything one could want in a Muslim ruler. He made Hajj. He donated thousands of pounds of gold in charity. He observed the fast of Ramadan and the five daily prayers. He promoted Islam in Mali and tried to rule by Sharia. Mansamus was also a just ruler. The laws within Mali were strict but applied fairly. He was not needlessly cruel and he avoided violence as much as possible. Sunni Ali, on the other hand, was both unjust and impious. He was the worst example of Muslim leadership. 
He delayed his prayers until late at night and combined them into a meaningless jumble of awkward movements. He did not know Al-Fatiha, the first chapter of the Qur'an, and an essential part of Islamic worship. He practiced some elements of the animist beliefs of his mother, and he punished those Muslims who prayed or fasted in his presence. And as a ruler, Sunni Ali was petty, cruel, vindictive, and bloodthirsty. Michael A. Gomez, in his book African Dominion, describes Sunni Ali as follows. It was not simply that he was always at war, but rather the way he went about it, hurling infants into mortars and ordering their mothers to pulverize them with pestles, then feed them to horses, burning people alive, committing myriad mutilations, including severing noses and hands, authorizing castrations, and splitting open the wombs of pregnant women to remove the fetuses, a practice associated with ancient Ghana's moral degradation and portent of their doom. Together with the raping of women, it is obvious that Ali sought to shock, and he more than succeeded, so much so that both As-Sa'adi and As-Suyuti assigned him the epithet of Khariji, the Kharijite. Knowing this, the inevitable clash between Sunni Ali and Timbuktu's scholarly families comes as no surprise. Sunni Ali and the Scholars of Timbuktu Sunni Ali hated the scholarly families of Timbuktu. He considered them traitors and cowards for collaborating with the Tuaregs for so many years. He considered them elitist because they denounced his impious behavior. Some of them even accused him of being a pagan like his mother. He considered them an impediment to his authority. The scholarly families were deeply connected to every aspect of Timbuktu and Sunni Ali had no desire to share power with them. After defeating the Tuaregs, Sunni Ali began an organized persecution of the scholars of Timbuktu. For whatever reason, he had an especial hatred for those families associated with the Senkore school. He imprisoned the sister of one of Senkore's Arabic grammar scholars and executed her two brothers. Then he forced the scholars of Senkore to send him thirty virgin daughters to be his concubines. Most of the girls died on the long trip back to the Songhai capital of Gao. The others were killed by his soldiers. The scholarly families began fleeing Timbuktu. Many of them fled to Walata in modern-day Mauritania. Sunni Ali ordered the governor of Timbuktu to give chase, and many more scholars were killed along the way. Al-Fagungu, the island of scholars, was an island in the Niger River near Timbuktu. Some of the scholars took refuge there. But Sunni Ali sent his armies to invade the island, killing and imprisoning everyone they found. The scholarly families were powerless to fight back. They had money and influence, but they were not fighters. Before Sunni Ali's persecution, most of these scholars spent their entire lives inside the mosques and schools of Timbuktu. There are stories of some scholars being afraid to mount a camel having never seen one before. In his persecution of the scholars, Sunni Ali sealed his own fate. Those scholars that did escape his wrath began plotting to get rid of him. Jinnah After conquering Timbuktu, Sunni Ali laid siege to the city of Jinnah about 200 miles south. But this would prove to be a more difficult task. Sitting on the banks of one of the tributaries of the Niger River, Jinnah had natural defenses that hindered Sunni Ali's army. When the river flooded, the city became an island, 
and when the waters receded, it left behind a swampy marsh that was difficult for land armies to traverse. Unable to attack the city head-on, Sunni Ali established a blockade around Jinnah, hoping to starve them into submission. This was not easy either, as the river forced his army to constantly shift to drier lands. Some historians say the siege of Jinnah lasted several years, but most likely was closer to six months. During this period, the Sultan of Jinnah died and his son, who was just a boy, became the ruler. The young Sultan's generals advised him to capitulate to Sunni Ali as the city was nearly out of resources and starvation was imminent. The boy relented and Sunni Ali's armies entered the city. In a surprising show of magnanimity, Sunni Ali opted not to sack Jinnah. In fact, he was so impressed by the young sultan's dignity and courage, he married the boy's mother and left her to manage the city in his stead. This offers some insight into Sunni Ali's thinking. He despised the scholarly families of Timbuktu for being elitists that collaborated with the Tuaregs, but he respected the sultan of Jinnah who resisted him for so long. Perhaps Sunni Ali's actions were partially driven by his own understanding of weakness and strength. Jinnah prospered under Sunni Ali. With Timbuktu in chaos, Jinnah soon became the second most important city in the Songhai Empire after the capital of Gao. Sunni Ali's Empire After Jinnah, Sunni Ali continued to expand his empire. He attacked and conquered Kabata near Timbuktu in 1477, then Tosoki in central Mali in 1479. He also attacked the Fulani cities of central Mali. With the lands of West and North Mali secure, he turned his attention south. Sunni Ali attacked the Mosi homelands of northern Burkina Faso in 1480. Then he conquered the Gorma lands of southern Burkina Faso in 1482. In retaliation for these losses, a Mosi army set out to confront Sunni Ali. The two armies met at Lake Debo in 1483, about 95 miles north of Jinnah in central Mali. The Mossi army was destroyed and Sunni Ali chased them all the way back to Burkina Faso. With the Mossi defeated and Mali severely weakened, the Songhai Empire was the dominant force in West Africa. It covered most of modern-day Mali and parts of Niger, Nigeria, and Benin. The success of Jinnah was evidence of Sunni Ali's administrative and military genius. For all his brutality, he usually appointed righteous men to rule the cities he conquered. This helped Sunni Ali create an efficient, streamlined government with him at the center. In Timbuktu, Sunni Ali brought in new scholars that he trusted and were loyal to him. He knew a religious city like Timbuktu needed Islamic scholars to run it rather than regular government bureaucrats. He even began to allow a few members of the original scholarly families to return. And now that he controlled most of the river ports along the Niger River, Songhai grew rich from the gold, salt, and slave trade. He was too busy fighting to bother much with foreign affairs and therefore had little influence outside of West Africa. The most significant thing he did was grant the Portuguese coastal trading rights. The Portuguese traded for gold and slaves, with many of those slaves winding up in European lands. Sunni Ali's persecution of the Timbuktu scholars shocked the Muslim kingdoms of North Africa. Many of them refused to do business with him and shifted their trade to other African states. And since he never made Hajj and prevented most of his close advisors from doing so as well, Sunni Ali missed the opportunity to establish diplomatic relations with the Arabs and Berbers. The End of the Sunnis
1486, several members of the exiled scholarly families of Timbuktu made Hajj where they prayed for deliverance from Sunni Ali before the Kaaba. From that point forward, things began to change. Sunni Ali was known to be very temperamental with fits of unbridled anger. During these rages, he would order executions of his closest advisors and generals, then just as quickly, he would calm down and rescind the orders. This unpredictable behavior created a level of distrust and malcontent within the higher ranks of his military. There is speculation that some of his high-ranking generals conspired with the scholarly families to assassinate Sunni Ali. One of those generals was named Mohamed Tore. Mohamed Tore was a former Soninke slave who had risen through the ranks. Mohamed Tore often found himself the target of Sunni Ali's rages. Sunni Ali had ordered Mohammed's execution several times only to change his mind before it could be carried out. Uprisings also began sprouting up throughout the Songhai Empire. To make matters worse, the Fulani kingdom was beginning to snatch small pieces of the empire away. In 1492, during one of the expeditions against the Fulani, Sunni Ali was riding his horse near a stream that has swollen from recent rains. Something spooked the horse, which bucked and threw Sunni Ali into the rushing waters where he was swept away. By the time they found his body, he had already drowned. At the time, it was considered an accident, but things start to look suspicious when we consider the events that followed. Sunni Ali was succeeded by his son Sunni Bado, who was also not very religious. This bothered the general Muhammad Tore, who wanted Songhai to be ruled by Sharia, or Islamic law. Within two months of Sunni Bado's ascension to the throne, Mohammed Tore launched a coup. There were two major battles between Mohammed Tore's forces and Sunni Bado's. Sunni Bado was defeated and either killed or forced into exile. And with that, the Sunni dynasty was over. Askiya Muhammad. Generals in the Songhai military held the title of Askiya. When Muhammad Tore overthrew the Sunni dynasty, he insisted on retaining his military rank and title. And Askiya Muhammad Tore had a huge task before him. For all intents and purposes, Askiya Muhammad was a usurper. He would have to work hard to earn the loyalty of the rest of the empire. He first needed validation from the religious establishment. To this end, Askiya Muhammad invited the scholarly families to return to Timbuktu. He even named several of them to positions of esteem and authority. While this may have fueled accusations of a conspiracy, it was a mutually beneficial alliance. The scholarly families regained their power in Timbuktu, and Askiya Muhammad got their support. And both wanted a land ruled by Sharia. The scholarly families helped Askiya Muhammad implement the Sharia while he involved them in government decisions. For further validation, Askiya Muhammad wrote a letter to the Moroccan scholar Muhammad Abdul Karim al-Maghili, author of the famous book on Sharia, The Obligation of Princes. Askiya Muhammad wanted to know if he was justified in overthrowing the Sunni dynasty. After learning of the impiety and violations committed by Sunni Ali and his son Sunni Bado, al-Maghili confirmed that Askiya Muhammad was Islamically justified. And now that he was in charge, al-Maghili told Askiya Muhammad it was his duty to establish Sharia in the Songhai Empire. 
But even with the support of the Scardali families and Al-Maghili, Askia Mohammed's rule was still in jeopardy. During the coup that brought him to power, Askia Mohammed could only get the support of one other general and one governor. Most of the other generals and governors were still loyal to the Sunni dynasty. They saw Askia Mohammed as a traitor and a pretender, a former slave acting above his rank. Two years after the coup, and Askia Mohammed only had control over the major cities of Jinnah, Timbuktu, and the capital Gao, where he was located. Most of the western provinces refused to recognize his authority. So in 1494, Askia Mohammed sent his brother Omar out west with an army. Umar defeated Askia's opponents and remained as his deputy over the western provinces. Askia Muhammad finally had control of the entire empire, and with a devout Muslim ruler in charge, the Arab and Berber states of the north re-established trade with Songhai and the economy flourished. But there was still one more thing Askia Muhammad had to do before he could be taken seriously as a Muslim ruler. He had to make the pilgrimage. In 1495, Askia Muhammad left his brother Umar in charge of the empire and set out for Mecca. While his entourage was not as grand nor as large as Mansa Musa's 170 years earlier, it was very impactful. He traveled with a relatively small force of a thousand soldiers and 500 horsemen. But Askia Muhammad was not trying to impress anyone with wealth and splendor. He wanted to present a nation that was defined by Islam and not by ethnicity. To this end, he included several scholars from multiple backgrounds. Some of these scholars represented previously persecuted groups like the Fulani and the scholarly families of Timbuktu. But there were also Mandi, Berber, and Arab scholars as well. Askia Muhammad brought 300,000 pieces of gold with him on Hajj, spending most of it on charity and living expenses. After performing the rites of Hajj, he remained in Arabia for two years, building connections with other prominent Muslims. Most of this time he spent in Medina, where he studied, gave charity, and bought orchards for public use. He also spent time in Mecca, where he met famous Muslim scholars such as Jalaluddin Asuyuti. Asuyuti is perhaps most known for co-authoring the famous work of Quranic exegesis Tafsir Jalalain. Askia Muhammad also created networks with prominent Muslim leaders such as the Ottoman Emperor and the Fatimid Caliph of Cairo. Both rulers appointed him their official representative in Songhai. Since the Ottomans were Sunni and the Fatimids were Shiite, and both considered themselves the legitimate ruler of the Muslim world, these pronouncements were ceremonial at best. Nonetheless, Askia Muhammad had accomplished his goal in the Middle East. He impressed everyone with his character and piety and returned to Sungai a much more confident and wiser ruler. He had increased his knowledge of Islam, made connections with some of the most important Muslims in the world, and had gained a better understanding of what it meant to be a Muslim leader. Askia Muhammad returned to Sungai intent on shaping it into an ideal Islamic empire. Expanding the Empire before he could see his vision of a perfect Islamic empire, Askia Muhammad had to strengthen his rule. There were still a few cities and villages that did not recognize his authority. One of the first things he did was go after the powerful Mossi kingdom of Burkina Faso that had given Sunni Ali so much trouble. Since he needed a reason to attack the Mossi, he sent an envoy to their leaders encouraging them to accept Islam. When the Mossis rejected his offer, Askia Muhammad used this as a pretext for war. 
Askia Muhammad was a lifelong warrior and he was thorough in battle. His armies ravished the Mossi lands, killing many of them and taking their children hostage. In 1499, he attacked the city of Tendirma near Timbuktu, where the governor was still loyal to the Mali Empire. Askia Muhammad conquered the city and arrested the governor. In 1501, he attacked another Mali town called Diala. Askia's armies nearly destroyed the city, but once it was pacified, he had it rebuilt. Now Askia turned his sights on Hausa land in modern northern Nigeria. The Hausas are an ethnic group primarily found in Nigeria but spread throughout much of West Africa. The Hausas were mostly Muslim at the time of Askia Muhammad and followed Maliki jurisprudence just like he did. There is some dispute as to whether Askia Muhammad actually waged war on the Hausas. Muslim historians writing a few generations after Askia Muhammad say he did fight and conquer them, but some modern historians insist it never happened. It is likely there were trade disputes and perhaps even a few clashes between Askia and the Hausas, but it is unlikely the pious Askia Muhammad would attack an independent Muslim kingdom and wage total war on them. Askia Muhammad certainly did try to cut into the Hausas' trade networks. In 1502, he attacked Agadez in central Niger, which was the primary commercial center for trade between Egypt and Hausaland. And in 1505, he attacked the Borgo people southwest of Hausaland, further cutting into their trade. However, there may have been other reasons for Askia Muhammad to attack the Borgus. This region had previously been aligned with Sunni Ali and were slow in recognizing Askia's authority. At the same time, the Dia people in the Songhai capital of Gao did not fully support him either. Askia Muhammad recruited the Dia people to attack the Borgus and both sides suffered heavy casualties. This allowed Askia Muhammad to weaken two enemies at once. With his military depleted after so much fighting, Askia Muhammad stopped waging wars and focused on building up the Songhai Empire. Songhai Society Askia Muhammad was serious about Islam and the faith played a big role in how he governed. However, there is no evidence that he forced anyone to accept Islam. He remained in contact with Al-Marili in Morocco. Al-Marili was a very strict Muslim and encouraged Askia to rule in a similar manner. He advised Askia Muhammad to execute people who practiced the occult and prevent the mixing of men and women in public. Despite his respect for Al-Marili, Askia Muhammad did not implement most of these suggestions. Askia Muhammad created an effective government structure for the Songhai Empire. He had to as now Songhai was bigger than either the Ghana or Mali empires before. The empire was divided into five large provinces with Askia's hand-picked governors administering each one in his name. Askia Muhammad was the overall ruler, but he had a council of advisors to assist him in various fields. He had advisors for the navy, army, taxes, foreign affairs, and even forestry and natural resources. He appointed most of the mayors of the cities, towns, and villages of Songhai. Askia Muhammad insisted that each mayor had to be Muslim, even if the inhabitants of that city were not. To his credit, most of his appointees were experts in Islamic law and not political favorites. As the ruler and an Islamic scholar in his own right, Askia Muhammad held the final say in all judicial matters. He reserved the right to overrule his judges if he felt the need to. The three major cities of Gao, Timbuktu, and Jinnah all became major economic centers. 
And with his scholarly families back in control, Timbuktu flourished and once again attracted Muslim students from all over the world. The Fall of Songhai Askia Muhammad ruled for 35 years until 1528. By this time, he was in his 80s and going blind. He was well past his prime and probably should have stepped down a long time before. Instead, his son Musa led a revolt, eventually defeating Askia Muhammad and forcing him to abdicate. Askia Muhammad was put under house arrest where he died 10 years later at the age of 97. The new ruler, Askia Musa, was not very good and only lasted three years. The empire experienced a period of decline and chaos as a string of ineffective rulers followed. Askia Dawood, fifth in line after Askia Muhammad, finally brought stability back in 1549. He ruled in peace until 1582 when Morocco tried to capture the salt mines of Tagaza in northern Mali. Knowing he was in no condition to fight the Moroccans, Askia Dawood ordered his people to abandon the city. He then shifted his salt mining activities to Taoldini, which was closer to Timbuktu and Gao and much easier to protect. When the Moroccans arrived, they found an empty city with no one to work it for them. Since they had no intention of working the mines themselves, they returned to Morocco empty-handed. But the Moroccans were not done. The Sahara Desert had always been an effective barrier between the West Africans and the kingdoms of the north. But the Moroccans had figured a way around that. The Moroccan sultan organized and trained a small crack force of 4,000 soldiers. They traveled south through the Atlas Mountains, sticking to the coast and away from the desert. Then they turned east and hurried through the Sahara towards Timbuktu. As a small force, they were able to travel lightly with few provisions. This time, the Moroccans were armed with harquebuses, an early type of musket. These ancient guns were little more than hand cannons with a steel tube attached to a wooden stock. The harquebus did not even have a trigger. The soldier just loaded gunpowder and a steel ball into the tube, then lit a fuse. The harquebus was balanced on a hooked stick to improve stability, but it was still very inaccurate. Nonetheless, when several harquebuses were lined up and fired in volleys at an advancing opponent, they could be devastating, especially when the opponent was armed with nothing more than leather shields and spears. The Songhai army outnumbered the Moroccans, but that did not matter in the face of superior weapons. The Moroccans swept through the Songhai Empire, capturing the major cities of Timbuktu, Gao, and Jinnay. The next Songhai ruler, Askia Nuh, reorganized his military and led a counteroffensive against the Moroccans. A long protracted war followed before the Moroccans finally withdrew in 1618. Songhai was simply too far away to maintain a continuous line of supplies. However, hundreds of Moroccan fighters stayed behind. They settled in Songhai, married African women, and had no intention of leaving. They formed militias led by warlords called Fatima. The Fatima ruled over small territories and constantly fought each other. The Songhai Empire and the Askia dynasty were gone. With the Fatima fighting each other, the Trans-Sahara trade networks disappeared and the region was plunged into poverty. All that remained of the Songhai Empire were their original ancestral homelands near the Niger River. American Slavery Different Muslim groups have fought each other for various reasons since the first fitna and the wars between Ali and Muawiyah. 
However, it had always been taboo for Muslims to enslave one another. Non-Muslim slaves who converted to Islam were often freed, but it was no guarantee. Muslims often ignored the Quranic injunction to free believing slaves. In time, there was an entire class of enslaved Muslims in many parts of the Muslim world. This was true of the Muslim empires of West Africa also. Though they sometimes fought, they usually did not enslave each other. But as the wars between the Moroccans and the Songhai intensified, attitudes changed. The Portuguese had tried to raid the west coast of Africa in the 15th century, but the African kingdoms were strong enough to fight them off. The Portuguese found it easier to obtain trading rights with the Africans and set up various depots along the coast where they traded for gold and slaves. The fighting in West Africa led to thousands upon thousands of prisoners of war. Many of these prisoners were sold as slaves to the Portuguese and other Europeans who by this time had established colonies in the Americas. These European colonies in America were growing and were in desperate need for labor. The Europeans had tried enslaving the local indigenous people, but that was not going very well. The Native Americans either rebelled, committed suicide, or simply ran off rather than be slaves in their own land. The Europeans saw the surplus of African slaves and prisoners of war as a suitable replacement. They reasoned the Africans were from a similar climate and were stronger than the Native Americans. Both of these ideas were stereotypes as many Africans came from desert-like conditions that were not at all similar to the tropical climates of the Caribbean and South America. And Africans suffered and died under brutal working conditions just as quickly as anyone else did. Nonetheless, this sparked the transatlantic slave trade which would last for another 400 years. During this period, over 15 million African slaves would come to the Americas. At least a third of them were Muslim. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that interesting and informative and entertaining as well. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, there's a lot of stuff that I just couldn't fit into the primary narrative that I kind of want to share with you. I thought maybe I could put it as a separate episode, but it's not quite enough for a separate episode, but it just didn't quite really fit in here. Well, I guess let me just get into it. The main reason why we have so much information about Songhai, the main reason I have so many details to give you about Songhai is because Songhai was, the Songhai Empire was later in history. The, um, there was much more recorded information about the Songhai Empire. So I'm going to try to discuss this, the, some of these details of why we have so much information about Songhai, uh, the Songhai Empire. By this time, the, um, Islam was well entrenched in West Africa. Everybody was a Muslim, not by any means, but there were a lot of Muslims. They had a Muslim universities, had many Muslim universities, they had Muslim schools, Muslim rulers, Muslim kingdoms. Muslims were all over it, over the place. Generation of Islam by this time, and so they also had a legacy of scholarship of Islam in uh, of, of Islamic scholarship in Songhai as well. So, with all these Muslim school uh, scholars 
running around West Africa, eventually some of them are going to start writing about the society that they lived in. This is just the way that's what scholars do. Scholars write. And so they started writing. And so we have a whole bunch of historical narratives about the society of Songhai, about the history, about the people, about many different things. So we have much more information in the period of Songhai than we had about than we had for either Mali or Ghana before, and also for several other um, parts of Africa. And then there was uh, also the Muslim scholars in question. There are two people that I want to mention, uh, two popular Muslim scholars, quite a few Muslim scholars actually, but two of them I want to bring out. Uh, actually, really is one I want to talk about. Uh, this one, his name was Leo Africanus, and he had a very interesting story. Very strange story. There are other scholars I, I thought I wanted to mention, but I'm going to skip all those other guys. Leo Africanus was interesting. I just found his story um, fascinating in many ways. He was um, he was born Muslim in Grenada in Spain the same year that the city fell to the Spanish. His birth name actually was Hassan ibn Muhammad al-Wazan. So when the Spanish took over Grenada, when they defeated the Muslim rulers of Grenada, I said Grenada, of Grenada, took over Grenada, and uh, they forced all the Muslims who did not convert to Christianity, they forced them to leave uh, Spain. Either had to leave Spain, convert to Christianity, or die. Hassan's parents, they left with him and settled in Fez in Morocco. So Hassan grows up, he studies at the University of Al-Qarawiyin in Fez, which is one of the most which one of the most respected respected and prestigious Islamic universities in the world, one of the oldest Islamic universities in the world. He studies at this university and becomes an Islamic scholar. So he becomes an adult, becomes an Islamic scholar, and then he becomes a diplomat for the ruler of Fez and as a diplomat, of, as a representative of the ruler of Fez, he gets to travel all over the area. His travels take him to places like Cairo and Constantinople and also Timbuktu. So he visited Timbuktu during the time that Askia Muhammad was in charge. So he was there to witness and record much of the information we have about Askia Muhammad, which is why we have so much information about him. In 1518, he was captured by the Spanish while he was traveling some other part of the world. He left Africa, continued traveling for the for the um, for the Sultan of Fez and was eventually captured by the Spanish somewhere. And he was sold into slavery and winds up in Rome. Rome, which is, of course, the center of the Catholic Church, and there, somehow or another, his story reaches the ears of the Pope of the time, and the Pope was so impressed with his story and also with the education and learning of Hassan, he set him free. Hassan gets set free, and he decides to convert to Christianity, and he took on the name Giovanni Leon. So the Pope puts him on a pension, and and basically, this pension frees Leo up to, to go learn Italian and to start writing down his experiences and his travels um, in Italian so that it could be read by Europeans. He writes a book called The History and Description of Africa, which was published in 1526. This book was then translated into English in 1600, and it is to date still one of the um, first and oldest English books about Africa. 
Now, most of what we know about Timbuktu comes from the writings of Leo Africanus. So this pope who supported Leo Africanus, by the way, he because he, he wrote this book that became very popular and is about Africa, he was he he got the nickname Leo Africanus because once again he took on the the uh, Christian name of Giovanni Leon. Anyway, he got the nickname Leo Africanus and uh, in 1523 this uh, pope who supported him who had uh, who had basically his benefactor died and then in 1527 uh, Rome was attacked and was attacked and sacked by some European enemy I can't remember who but now that um, Leo had no benefactor he fled to Rome and winds up back in Tunis and then we kind of lose track of him, but there is speculation that he converted back to Islam and wound up, wound up dying in Morocco. So, I just thought that was an interesting story, and there's many other interesting stories of some of the some of the different scholars who wrote about Islam in West Africa, and just just an example of why we have so much information about Songhai. And, and I had to leave a lot of stuff out. You really don't know. I know this episode took a long time to come, almost two months to come, really, since the last one. But there was so much detail to sort through and to figure out what was important and what was not important. There's, I mean, really, I spent a lot of time researching this one. And I wish I could give you more. I wish I could give you more, but got to move on to other, other topics. So as you can see, it takes me quite a while to put these episodes together. And I know I apologize and people tell me I don't have to apologize. And you guys understand that I have to work. I get it. I just feel guilty about it. But if you are, however, in need of more Islamic history podcasts, if what you're getting on my somewhat inconsistent schedule is not enough, I strongly suggest you become a a patron on Patreon. If you become a Patreon subscriber, if you become a Patreon patron, you help first of all to pay for the hosting for this app for this show as well as help me buy books that i need for research but also patreon subscribers you get access to bonus episodes this will include both back episodes from season zero when i was just trying to get my way about things and season one which is mostly um history from the quran so you get all these back episodes if you become a uh, Patreon subscriber. Right now, also you also get the major thing that you get is um, you get access to episodes about the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the Sira. And right now we are on the Battle of Uhud, and these are mostly new episodes. There are some of the episodes were recorded earlier. But as of now, actually as of a couple of weeks ago, these are new episodes that had never that have never been heard before. So that's what is coming out right now. The Life of Prophet Muhammad Sallam. New episodes not heard by anyone, but only for Patreon subscribers. So right now we're in the middle of, battle, of the Battle of Ahud. If you are interested in that, please go to patreon.com slash Islamic History. Uh, as you always know, show notes and links will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash askia, A-S-K-I-A. And we're going to close out with a few minutes from one of my favorite episodes from season one. It is about the story of Sarah and Hajar, uh, the wives of Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam. And so with that, until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Rabbish rahni sadri wa yasidri amri. 
Alhamdulillah, welcome back to another episode of the Islamic History Podcast. This episode is continuing our series on the discussion of history of Islam from the Qur'an, meaning we are taking different aspects of the Qur'an and discussing the historical events surrounding them. So far, we've done several episodes regarding previous nations that uh, that had been destroyed as punishments from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Today, we are going to talk more about certain individuals, particularly, particularly, we're going to start talking about some women, inshallah, two righteous women that were connected to prophets in many different ways. In this case, we are talking about the wives of Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam, and that would be Sarah and Hajar. So let's go ahead and discuss them. Now, just a few boundaries or a little bit of groundwork before we get started, just to let you know that we will only be able to get but so much information from the Quran. This is just a simple matter of fact that the Quran does not really have much to say about these two women. There's a little bit in the in the Quran about Sarah. There's not much about Hajjat at all. So we will only get but so much information directly from the Quran, though they are related. The, the These women are related and connected to at least three different prophets. Make that four. Make that four. And really more than that, if you really want to think about it. I'm just talking about within their lifetimes, they were connected to at least three, four different prophets. But in addition to that, in addition to the Quran, we will be getting most of our information as far as our Islamic information from the Hadith. There are extensive Hadiths written about, uh, not written, but extensive Hadiths about both of these women, uh, two very popular stories. And from those Hadith and with the Quran as well, we can put together a narrative of sorts. And for the parts that are missing, there will be some gaps we will probably have to refer to the Bible for some of those things. But the Bible is our third line of references. It is not by any means a primary reference in this episode, inshallah. So, and just to lay some groundwork, because this this will be the first time we may have to rely a little bit more on the Bible than before, is that when it comes to the Bible, the basic Islamic stance on stories of the Bible Anything from the Bible is that if it contradicts Quran and Sunnah, it is not accepted. However, there are many parts of the Bible that does not contradict Quran and Sunnah. And so for those parts, we neither accept it nor reject it outright without further evidence. But if we get some parts of the Bible that matches third-party evidence or historical evidence, historical or scientific proof, then it makes sense to accept it at that point in time. Uh, so long as it doesn't contradict the Quran or Sunnah. And so that's what we're going to do in this aspect. There will be many parts of the story that the Quran doesn't really give us enough information on and the Hadith does not give us enough information. And so we're going to have to um, just refer to the Bible for those parts. But there's not that many parts we're going to need the Bible, but there are some. But just letting you know, this is not, we're not going to use the Bible too often. So don't get all twisted about it or anything like that. All right, so once again, we're talking about uh, Sarah and Hajar, who were two of the wives of Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam. But you should know that Ibrahim alayhi salam most likely had more than just these two women as his wives. The Quran does not mention it, but, and this is one of those instances where we're going to have to refer to the Bible a little, a little bit. 
We mentioned in the previous episode the story of Shuaib and the Midianites. The people of Midian were descended from a child of Ibrahim alayhi salam that he had with a later wife of his named Keturah. If you want to know a little bit more about that, though I didn't say there's not much more to know except what I just said, is that he had another wife named Keturah who who had a son named Midian and he became the father of the Midianites. And uh, there's evidence from the Bible that he may have had many more wives and children also. But the two that we are discussing are, of course, the ones that are that are important and prominent in Islam. And these were two women who were mothers of prophets themselves. That is Sarah and Hajar. Now, Ibrahim's first wife was Sarah, and her name means princess, actually means my princess. And the Bible says that her original name was Sarai. S-A-R-A-I, which means my princess, but later on it got turned to Sarah, which just means princess. And we know about her uh, from another episode of uh, this podcast we talk, when we discussed the story of Lot salam, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the punishment that came to them. We mentioned how Ibrahim salam, he eventually had to leave his people of Babylon after they try to burn him alive because they were upset about him trying to move them away from paganism and towards monotheism. They got tired of him preaching to them, and so they decided, let's go ahead and burn Ibrahim alive. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved Ibrahim, and after that incident, Ibrahim figured it was probably best that he settled somewhere else. So he took his uh, wife who, at the time, who was Sarah, and left with his nephew Lut, um, Prophet Lot, and they left Babylon and eventually settled elsewhere. And just real quick reference back to the Bible, and we're going to do this back and forth. We'll mention something in Islam, the Islamic standpoint, and then if there is something interesting about it from the Bible, something I want to bring out, then I'll go ahead and refer to the Bible real quick. But this is something in the Bible where I probably will reject it, is the Bible says that Sarah was his half-sister. Now, that I'm going to reject because that doesn't make any sense that a prophet would marry his sister back then or now or any other time. That's disgusting. So we're going to reject that part regardless of what the Bible says. So no, I'm not going to accept that Ibrahim married his own half-sister. So we're not going to accept that. But I just want to bring that out when I say, so you understand what I mean by some parts of the Bible we may accept and some parts we will not accept. And some parts we neither accept nor reject. Well, that part I'm going to reject, okay? Anyway, moving on. So they left Babylon, the three of them, and were heading west towards Egypt. And in this period, Prophet Lut salam was called by Allah to preach to the people of Sodom, and he left their party. Now, once again, I may have mentioned this before. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this in the uh, story about Lut and Sodom. I don't want to necessarily fill in all the gaps gaps with my own exposition, but sometimes it's kind of obvious. So it is obvious the Quran says clearly that three that no, it doesn't say three people. It says that Ibrahim salam left Babylon and left his people with his followers. And the Mufasidun pretty much say the only followers he had were his nephew Lot and his wife Sarah. That's it. So they left. The next thing we know about him is that he arrives in uh, a town. The Bible says it's Egypt, but um, but the Hadith about the same story pretty much just says a town. Somewhere in between there, however, only two people are there. So we leave Babylon with three and we arrive in Egypt with two. So therefore, one person dropped off and that one person would be Lot, alayhi salam. And so that's how we construct the narrative. We take the facts we do know 
And from that, we can kind of infer or derive the facts that we don't know. 